Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. WBUR Podcasts. Boston. Hey, folks. Howdy. <laughs> a very a very relevant salutation, Amory. <laughs> and I can't say it with a straight face because <laughs> I'm from Ohio. Oh. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, yours truly is still alive and recovering from COVID. And also uh, the Endless Thread team is working on some tight mysteries, some loose histories, uh, some other wild stories from the Internet. What does that even mean? You know, I don't Are know. We? It just is. Yeah, of course we are. Okay. Um, well, I know of at least two you're working on. At mm, least I mm. hope you're working on them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, we'd like to play you an episode from the back catalog that is still pretty relevant today. Yeah. In honor of Juneteenth, we wanted to bring you an episode that we made back in the summer of 2020 that is very near and dear to our hearts. So you're going to hear some old credits in there if you listen that far. I hope you do. And you'll hear some different ways of describing the show. But other than those things, it still rings true today in many ways. And we hope you'll agree and we hope you enjoy it. So swing into the saddle with us and let's ride. Giddy up. Amory. Mm-hmm. When I say cowboy, what do you picture and what do you hear? Ooh. Uh, dun 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 bonanza. Dun 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 I don't think, I just realized, I don't think that bonanza is actually like a lyric in the song. I think that's just what my dad would sing when we'd watch bonanza. It feels right. It feels good. Yeah. What about you? So I think about Shane. That like sad cowboy movie. Have you seen that movie? No. It's is okay. So like this mysterious gunfighter like helps a bunch of settlers fight back against a cattle baron trying to run them out of the valley. Uh, mm-hmm. You know your your usual cattle baron uh, storyline. Um, yeah. And and Shane gets shot uh, near the end of the movie and rides into the sunset while his friend, this little boy, yells, "Shane, Shane, come back, Shane." But Shane, like, doesn't turn around, maybe because he's actually dead from the gunshot wound, riding dead on his horse into the sunset. Hmm. Well, now I don't need to see it. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry for the spoiler. (laughs) Um, But I think there is something interesting about that movie. This cowboy drifted dude, Shane, who gets hired as a cattle hand and then helps the settlers fight back, he shows up soon after the Civil War. Which is when a lot of people were showing up in the West to find new opportunities after the war ended. But the depictions of this time period, almost all the Shanes are blonde-haired, blue-eyed dudes, when in reality, a lot of these cowboys were black. And a lot of people have only fully understood this just recently, including the author and podcaster Walter Thompson Hernandez, who has been spending time with modern black cowboys around the country. And, you know, in spending time with these with these cowboys, like, I've learned myself, right, that, that one in four of every cowboys 
in the American West was in fact black, right? And like, these were men and women who following the Civil War, you know, were left with very little sort of opportunities, um, economic opportunities. So a lot of folks headed, headed, of course, you know, to places like New York and Chicago, but a lot of folks headed West. And so, you know, there was a sort of long line of, of black cowboys. And, you know, I'm talking about like Nat Love and John Ware and Bill Pickett. Pause. Did you know any of those names, Ben? I feel like Bill Pickett sounds familiar, but my short answer is no. Okay, check this out. You know the phrase, grab the bull by its horns? Know it, I live it every day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Bill Pickett, he was a black cowboy from Texas. He invented what's called bulldogging, the act of wrestling a bull to the ground by jumping off your horse, grabbing it by the horns, and tipping it over. And, of course, we use this phrase all the time, but most people don't know anything about the guy who invented it. And Walter says the famous black cowboys are just the tip of the historical iceberg. These were all black men who were essentially known for being some of the most daring and adventurous riders. And, you know, the, the, the sad thing, right, is that we do know about a few of these names, but there's thousands of other black men and women whose names we'll never know. Walter has been trying to change that. He's been writing about not just the history of black cowboys, but the black cowboys of today. Which, it turns out, has been timely, because a lot of people are seeing black cowboys for the first time, even saddling up themselves. Once we seen everything that was going on and we actually started enjoying it, like, it was black cowboys every weekend, like, thousands of them. So we started our own group, and it just took off from there. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. I'm Amory Sievertson. And you're listening to Endless Thread. The show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. We're coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station. Today's episode, Giddy Giddy Up! up. After police killed George Floyd on camera... When protests against police brutality broke out in cities around the country, some of the protest videos that went viral showed black men and women mounting up to ride in solidarity. Some of those men and women mounting up were from Houston, part of a trail riding group that started a few years ago. Okay, my name is Cassandra Johnson. I am the first lady of Nonside Riders, and my husband is the president. Nonstop Riders is a nonprofit trail riding group that we started in 2016 just to do something different for the community, you know, show them something different. We are a group of 115 people, and we have people who horseback ride. We have uh, a party wagon that the people who don't have horses, they are allowed to get on the wagon. I, I ride on the party wagon on back of the truck. I'm out. We have a, a truck that pulls the wagon so I can watch everything that's going on on the party wagon. We have a driver that drives us, and my husband DJs on the party wagon when he's not riding Sunshine. Tell me about Sunshine. Sunshine is a Palomino that we have, and she's the baby to our family. We have had, like, seven horses, but I'm just not the horse girl. I'm sorry. I'd rather be on a party wagon. (laughs) (laughs) 
where do the horses stay? We have a barn that's actually down the street from my house. There's plenty of barns in Houston, Texas, but our barn is probably like five minutes away from my home. We go to it every day, make sure Sunshine's fed, make sure she's taken care of. For Cassandra and other members of her group, riding horses is part of everyday life. So she was surprised when a video of nonstop riders trotting through the streets of Houston went viral. I mean, it's kind of normal to me because I go to trail rides every weekend. I see, I see thousands of black men on horses. Thousands. But we stay out of the radar, like I said, so nobody believes that, you know, it's black men that ride horses, but it, there's plenty. Do you think part of the problem is that people have forgotten some of this history? I do. I believe we've forgotten our own history until now. Walter Thompson Hernandez grew up 1,500 miles away from Houston in Los Angeles, where, when he was a kid, the sight of a Black person on horseback was surprising. When I saw, like, Black cowboys for the first time, you know, I was about six years old, and my mom and I, you know, I grew up about five minutes away from Compton, so we were, like, kind of always in the area. And I see these, like, two Black men on horses one day, and it kind of just, like, really startled me, you know, and it really sort of just surprised me that I hadn't learned about Black cowboys in schools, you know, like in the history books and in these sort of like John Wayne films and Clint Eastwood films. Like, it's all just like white cowboys, right? Kill just about everything you walks or crawled at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill. And I was like, Mom, like, look. And, and you know, my mom looks at me and she's completely unfazed. You know, she's just like, yeah, like, Black cowboys, you know? <laughs> This was the beginning of a journey that would eventually lead Walter to focus his writing on Black people getting into the saddle. Why do you think the story of Black cowboys is not really usually included in a mainstream understanding of, of like, American history? Part of it has to do with this, like, historical amnesia. I think, like, our um, attention spans, you know, are often really short. And, you know, as a society, we kind of forget things every five to, to ten years and like things get sort of repurposed or rediscovered. So I think that's part of it. But I also think it's like in line with this sort of like, you know, historical erasure too, right? Where like the gatekeepers, you know, those folks who eventually sign off on these stories and, and like don't want it to be too normalized, right? They're like, okay, we can give you the image of a black cowboy every ten years, but like that's enough, okay? That's it. Some of this kind of gatekeeping happened back in 2018. That year, Walter felt like he really had his finger on the pulse. He'd just written a piece for the New York Times with the headline, Compton Cowboys. Walter's piece was about a new generation of people in Compton who, as the article described it, were trying to create a safer community and challenge assumptions at the same time. Assumptions about who could and who could not be cowboys. Old Town Road, a song first released in the fall of 2018 by the then-relatively-unknown independent rapper Lil Nas X, would also challenge these kinds of assumptions. This is my hot take. Okay, so um, I wrote that New York Times story early 2018. And I think Old Town Road comes out late 2018, October, November, something like that. And, and so I'm like, man, like, I think... <laughs> you wrote... Did you write Old Town Road? Did you write it? I'm the ghostwriter. <laughs> okay, guys, listen. <laughs> Hot take. I wrote Old Town... No, I, I did not write Old Town Road. I had nothing to do with Old Town Road. Riding on a horse. You can whip your horse. I've been in a valley. You ain't been up off that. 
But I will say that I think the Compton Cowboys in some way maybe helped spur that, you know, and, you know, pun intended, right? Spur that. Yes. (laughs) The song first gained a following when the Atlanta rapper started posting it anonymously on Reddit. That fed into posts on the video and music social media app TikTok, where kids use the song as a soundtrack to videos. And right around the same time, one of the biggest video games of the year, an outlaw action-adventure game set in the Wild West called Red Dead Redemption 2, launched. It would go on to sell 35 million copies and become one of the most popular video games of all time. Lil Nas X took rootin' tootin' footage of the game and set it to his song. And that video quickly got millions of views on YouTube. As the song became inescapable, it launched a new wave of the cowboy aesthetic in Black popular culture, the so-called Black Yeehaw Agenda. And a lot of people questioned the validity of history and the trend. Billboard even took it off the hot country chart, saying it supposedly didn't meet the standards of today's country music, a move that, all by itself, caused a huge controversy. And then came the release of an Old Town Road remix featuring white country singer Billy Ray Cyrus, which, along with launching the song into the stratosphere, was basically an attempt for the song to be recognized as a country song. The fact that Little Nas X wasn't sort of initially allowed to partake in, you know, this sort of like country music genre because of, of frankly, you know, of how he looked, you know. This, this was a black man from Atlanta who had like a hip hop beat, but who was obviously like doing it in a very country way. Like that's a country song, a, a really sort of catchy country song, right? So I think there is a connection there, you know, and I think this sort of like larger um, yeehaw agenda, like quote unquote, right? It, it's something that like has always sort of like uh, tiptoed between like, you know, like hip hop culture and, 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 and country culture. But I think it's like, a conversation that that was bound to happen. And I'm so happy that that song really blew up and took off in a way that I think nobody imagined. It took off right as Walter Thompson Hernandez was expanding his 2018 article for The New York Times into a book about black cowboys. I'd be lying if I did if, if I told you that I didn't email my um, editors and publishers. I was like, hey, guys, like we, we have to publish this earlier. You know, like this is really taking off. You know? <laughs> so I did that and they're like, no, Walter, that can't happen. Walter's book is out now. The Compton Cowboys, the new generation of cowboys in America's urban heartland. And it explores the idea of who gets to decide just who and who isn't a cowboy. The definition itself is tricky. Do you have to be roping cattle on a ranch to be a cowboy? Is it about the outfit, the way of life? Or in 2020 America, is it something a little simpler? A relationship with a horse? Who gets to take ownership of the definition? We do rope cows. We do rope cattle. You know, we we, we have living quarters with trailers. We have horses. We have horse trailers. We have barns. There are black cowboys. And there are black cowboys that choose to stand up for what's right. Well, you know, in, in writing and researching from this book, um, I spent a lot of time with, with, with different black cowboy and cowgirl communities throughout the U.S. Um, I spent time in Oakland. I spent time in, in L.A. I was in Houston. I was in Atlanta. And I was in, in, in Philadelphia for a bit as well. And, you know, one thing that I saw was, like, there was, there was such a huge sort of difference between, like, urban riders and rural cowboys, right? The Compton Cowboys, you know, they are cowboys, but they're also folks who, you know, live in Compton. So 
you really won't see them, you know, dressing up with like, you know, cowboy hats or cowboy boots or like Wrangler jeans. Like these guys and, and, and women are, are, are wearing, you know, Nikes and, and Nike Air Jordans, you know, and, and sort of doing that. And their biggest thing is at least finding a few times a week to ride together. So the Compton Cowboys um, kind of, their story kind of begins in 1988 when Maisha Akbar uh, starts this this uh, Compton Junior Posse organization in in the Richland Farms, which is where the uh, um, Cowboys Ranch is located at. And they sort of take up horse riding and, and, and really sort of like, you know, tap into this, this cowboy culture in Compton. And so um, they kind of, you know, each one of them in some way, like majority of them kind of stop riding around, you know, 13, 14, 15, when, when, when apparently, you know, riding horses kind of didn't become cool anymore. You know, I think like a lot of them, like, started to play sports or like, you know, started to do other things with their lives. Um, But in their 20s, like in their mid to to late 20s, they sort of all have a moment at around 2017 or so when they sort of all start slowly migrating back to the ranch. And they sort of like come together and and officially form as the Compton Cowboys and sort of like become a staple in their community. These writers also have a distinct impact on the dynamics of their community. You know, in urban communities throughout the U.S. and places like Compton, the the horses are are so much more than than a vehicle, right? Like they often become a shield and even like a sense of armor that that protect the cowboys against numerous things like police violence and, and rival gangs. And you know, there is like such a difference be- between a black man or woman walking through Compton um, or driving through Compton and riding through Compton. Police and and rival gangs really sort of like give these guys a pass when they're on their horses but when they're walking or when they're in in, in their cars it becomes like open season free game back to houston in a minute The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig.
When Walter was researching his book, Compton Cowboys, he went to Houston and witnessed some of the local traditions of the trail riding groups there. You know, a place like Houston is, is really sprawled out and, you know, there's more opportunities for, for these huge, massive rides, right? And these, like, beautiful, like, Zydeco dances on, on Fridays and Saturdays, which I actually attended. Cassandra, the woman who founded Nonstop Riders with her husband, participates in these events every weekend. On Friday nights, we have dances. On Saturdays, we have trail rides where all of the horses come out and everybody ride. And, you know, music is being played. We play country. We play rap. We play gospel. We play Zydeco. You all will be amazed to see how many black uh, cowboys they are. On Friday, it may be this trail ride group dance. On Saturday, it may be this trail riding group camp out and ride. So every weekend, we have something to do. Tell me about what happened last Friday night before the first protest you went to. One of our members, which she's in our trail riding group, she was having her sister a party. But when we got there, the DJ was nowhere to be found. So they asked my husband, can you change, uh, put the music on something different? So when he did put the music on something different, a cop passed by. You know, the first one passed by, he waved, and then we seen we seen the second cop pass by. So when he passed by, we noticed he did a U-turn and came back. When he came back, he uh, parked the car, he got out, he said, turn it off. So we were like, okay. So my husband, you know, he it's not his equipment, so he fumbled with it for a minute, and then he turned it off. He closed the computer and turned it off. And he asked him for his driver's license. And my husband was like, okay, I'll give you my driver's license, but what's the reason behind me giving you my driver's license? I'm going to give you a loud music ticket. I'm like, are you serious? I'm angry. He's giving my husband a loud music ticket. So at this time, there the other two officers are pulling back up who had just passed by. So uh, one of the guys who was kind of decent, he got out the vehicle and me and him started talking. And so he was like, well, the officer who I was speaking with, he said, well, ma'am, he could just go to court and get it dismissed. I said, my husband is a working man. We are taxpayers. Why is it that he has to take off of work and sit in the courthouse for a loud music ticket when you ask him what to do and he complied with what he what you asked? I'm like, sir, they're they're riding downtown. You know, we just we're here not doing anything. And I'm like, with everything going on in the world today, how can this be? happening right now I mean you know I slept on it I just woke up with like anger in my heart and I know that's not the right thing to do but I woke up with anger in my heart because I'm just like how many times do we have to go through this so Saturday we got our members together we rode in uh, on our wagon. We didn't take the horses this one particular day. We rode in on our wagon with our red shirts up with our fists in the air and the police were actually lined up with the tactical gear on, the face mask, and we were able to say what we felt. And I never wanted to be in a police face. I never want to be disrespectful, but I did. That day, I had my sign, and my sign said, how do I explain to my 17-year-old son that he's a black king, but every time he gets stopped by police, he has to bow his head in fear? How do we teach them to be proud of who they are? You know, y'all wouldn't understand how it feels to give your child a pep talk every time they walk out the door. 
I tell my son, I ask my son, what's the protocol? What do you do when they pull you over? Where are your hands supposed to go? When they ask for your driver's license and their registration, sir, can I reach for it or do you need to? And it's so sad that that's what we have to do. But not only my son, it happened to my husband that Friday. And it's just so sad to keep on watching it happen time after time after time. And when this happened to George Floyd, it just hit so close to home to me. George Floyd dated my cousin. And then he lived in the CUNY homes. And my cousin, you know, they're all from the CUNY homes, third ward. So it's just like, you know, you become family if this is you grow up from a child, look. When they called me and told us what happened and I looked at the news, that was the most heartbreaking thing I could have ever seen. Like, I, I would never understand losing my child in that manner. That took the soul out of me, and especially to hear a grown man call for his mother. You know, with our moms, we try to protect our kids. Like I always tell my son, I'm your superwoman. I will always be there to protect you. But when it come down to certain people, I mean, you know, it's like we lose. So we wanted to walk. We wanted to protest. So the next victim won't be our son. A few days after Cassandra rode on the party wagon to a protest, the nonstop riders took to the streets again, this time on horseback. Cassandra's husband, Marcus, and Sunshine, of course, were there. And so Tuesday, he was called, you know, and asked to attend uh, the trail ride with a couple of more riders. And it was about maybe 30 of them. They rode from Fifth Ward to downtown to uh, Discovery Green. And it was just amazing for me to see my husband out there fighting for what he believed in. And even, I mean, on his horse. Does your husband want to say anything? Would he be willing to say anything if you put him on? Yes, he just made it. I mean, do you want to speak with him? Yeah, I would, I would love to, just for a minute, if that's okay. Yes, sir. That would be lovely. This is Mr. Ben. He's writing, he, he got a ball case. Say hello. Hello. Hi, Mr. Ben. Hey, is that Marcus? Yes, sir. How you doing, Mr. Ben? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. Is there anything you want to say about your experience on Tuesday? Oh, it was it was overwhelming. I was excited, you know, because normally you see the Houston Police Department horses down there just to see all the, you know, black cowboys or whatever, you know, go down the street. And man, it was it was a wonderful feeling, you know. I really enjoyed it. What do you hope comes of all of this? I just hope that everybody can come together as one. Cause I love everybody. I don't care what color you are. Over the last month or so, black cowboy groups seem to have gained a lot of visibility, at least online, um, because of their presence at protests against racism and police brutality. What do you think it is about black men and women riding horses that has sent such a strong message? I think historically, especially at demonstrations, right, like the police have often used uh, mounted units 
to, you know, with horses, right? To, to really sort of, I think, invoke fear in demonstrators. Going back even further, right, to like sharecropping days or like plantations, right, with enslaved Africans, I think the sight of white men on horses represented power and, and control. And so I think the sight of black men and women on horses kind of does the same thing for a lot of people. Like it taps into a sort of maybe a subconscious fear of this like plantation revolt, right? The sort of reversal of power or like, you know, revenge or, you know, equality, right? It just shows that I think black folks have been have been forced to, to find creative ways to survive over time and generations. The sight of, 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 of black men and women on horses, to me also, you know, speaks to something more larger, right? It, it sort of speaks to this, it's a political statement, right? Like it's both saying that like, yes, we exist, right? Black men and women can be cowboys, but also we are here to express ourselves in a political way. And these horses, for, you know, are our vehicles and these horses, you know, are essentially leading the charge for racial equality. We're more than just a trail riding group. We're more than just a wagon. We're more than just men on horses. We're black. We're mothers. We're, we're sisters. We're grandmothers. We're aunts. We're uncles. So if it takes me to get out in a hundred degree weather in the middle of a pandemic to walk and show you what I believe in, I'm going to do it. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station, in partnership with Reddit. Josh Swartz is our producer who loves seeing horses at protests because it's a great example of animals doing stuff. Iris Adler is our executive producer, and she thinks the controversy around Old Town Road was just one big face palm. Mix and sound design by Paul Vikas, who grabs life by the horns to escape our boring dystopia. Michael Pope is our advisor at Reddit, and he does not dance to Zydeco but he does love dancing too. Music French people might play at a party or just with friends around. Editing help from managing producer Kat Brewer, extra help from Frank Hernandez, and additional music by Paul Vikas. Also, if you want to hear more from Walter Thompson Hernandez, you're in luck because his podcast California Love debuted just this week. It's an audio memoir that explores what it means to belong or not belong to the places we're from. You can find it wherever you listen to us. On Reddit, we are endless underscore thread. If you want to contribute art for an upcoming episode or give us a story tip so we can tell it like we did today, hit us up there. My co-host and producer is Amory Sievertson. My co-host and senior producer is Ben Brock Johnson. Yeehaw! Yeehaw!